Welcome, everybody. This is episode four of Please Touch the Art podcast. My name is Kieve, and because I told you all my credentials last time, I'm going to tell you some fun facts about me. I can play the ukulele. I have a high tolerance for spicy food. And this week, I learned how to use a wood burner. Ramona, would you like to tell everybody about yourself, who you are? Hi, my name is Ramona Peel. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a LGBTQ plus cultural humility trainer. I'm a political science instructor. Where do you work? I work at Equitas Health and at the Newark branch of the Ohio State University. Very important, the Ohio State University. you have to remember the the. Mm -hmm. I also always forget to tell people that my pronouns are they, them, theirs. I think that's all we really need before we can get into this lovely painting that's right right here. So I just want you to tell me what you see. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then I can. No, 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 no. I can do that. So, okay. Point of the podcast. I Mm -hmm. don't know anything about this piece. All right. So I'm looking at this piece. It looks like this is a person of nobility. Okay. For one thing, it looks like they have multiple horses, although that could be the horse of the person who is apparently putting on their boots. Okay. I don't know what they're going to do with that dog once they both get on the horses. (laughs) I mean, that's a good question. Looks like it's a pleasant day. Given how they're dressed, it is probably spring or fall. It doesn't look like it would be summer or winter, given how they're dressed. Okay. It looks pastoral in the background, like the two horses are like on a path, and there's like a hedgerow. And then behind that, there are a number of cattle that are kind of chilling out. Then it looks like behind them is a lake or a river. Yeah, so to point off what you're seeing, I'm seeing kind of like almost a hunting party with the presence of the horses, the dogs, the uniforms. The only thing that's really missing is kind of like a fox, like somewhere in the background. I'm noticing a lot of warm colors, like there's this yellow on the left-hand side that's kind of splashing over the horizon line. There's a lot of yellows and oranges in the grassy area. It looks like it might be at sunrise or near sunrise. Maybe near sunrise or sunset. Kind of like a drier, but still like in the realms of wet environment, kind of Mediterranean, which is interesting to me and you'll find out later why I think that's very interesting for this person. Is there anything else that you want to touch down on? I do once again want to point out the cattle, the dogs, and the fact that there's one person who's very noble and one person who's just shuffling around with their boots. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. They both, t- I don't know enough about the, You're different, good. the different uniforms of nobility of whatever era this is. But, I mean, they both have, both have fancy hats. They do both have fancy hats, and I quite like the feathers. So this is Horsemen Resting in a Landscape by Albert Coupe. This was oil on canvas. It is 45.6 inches by 66.1 inches. So Albert was a Dutch painter from the Baroque era. And I think I'm going to tell you a little bit about where you can look at this painting right now. All right. So right now, this painting is at the Columbus Museum of Art. It is inside of the special exhibit called Life in the Age of Rembrandt. So you can go down from a few weeks ago 
to about June to go see this yourself if you want to see it in person. I actually highly recommend going to see it in person. It's very interesting, the amount of collection, and Albert Koop in particular has a lot of paintings. Life in the Age of Rembrandt special exhibit is in partnership with the Dordrecht Museum in the Netherlands. They actually, all of the paintings that are in the exhibit are from that museum and the CMA in particular. They've been partnering for a while, but I think this is one of the first exhibits that they're having together. And I want to talk a little bit about the Columbus Museum of Art before we get back to talking to the painting. The Columbus Museum of Art was founded in 1878 and at the time was known as the Columbus Gallery of Fine Arts. And it's the first art museum to charter in the state of Ohio. Their mission is in line with a lot of things that I care about. They are very focused on accessibility for people to come and kind of be able to interact with the art, see great art made by great people and have great experiences. They have one of the largest collections of local artists in the United States amongst their collection. They have a commitment to contemporary art and a quote that I found on their website in their mission statement is that they're built for the community by the community. Have you been to the Columbus Museum of Art? I have been to the Columbus Museum of Art a number of times. And yes, I am am that person who tends to go when it's free. (laughs) I mean, it is free on Sundays. (laughs) So like, hey, it's free on Sundays and they have a good student discount. You get in for free if you're a CCAD student. And I think Thursday they have like a cheap day if you come in after a certain time. Yeah, Um, what are you feeling? Well, it makes me think... It makes me think that I guess I guess one thing I just think right off the bat is this feels like it was made for about and by whatever the the socioeconomic elite was <laughs> when when this when this was made. Yeah. Mm. I'm actually really excited to talk to you about this because there's some poli sci stuff that goes <laughs> into uh, why this painting even exists. Right, right. Because like once again, not having the voluminous background knowledge it would stand to reason that maybe somebody very wealthy commissioned this painting Mm -hmm. because it doesn't seem feel like it reflects everyday life for a normal person in the Netherlands in this era. Right. Well, actually, this painting was not a commission. Okay. Um, Albert Koop often was commissioned by the middle class in particular because of Dutch's at the time the Netherlands were experiencing a boom in their middle and merchant classes. And so this piece was inspired by some other pieces that he had made for specific people. One of the interesting things about this piece is this piece is supposed to be anonymous so that somebody can walk in, go, I love this painting. It feels like it belongs to me and purchase it, which is why there's so little detail given on both of the coats for all that they are different colors for all that they are like you have the feather plume and the brocade and such there isn't any particular placement of who this is or which family this particular painting belongs to albert is really considered to be a dutch master he's a symbol of dutch pride from that era when i was doing my reading one of albert's critics said that the masterpieces of Cube were never really fully understood. Some of the critiques that he received actually are in line with a lot of Baroque era artists that the figures are not as like in sharp relief. They're not as exact as like 
figures from the Renaissance were. Let's talk a little bit about the hunting scene. So especially with the rising middle class, the hunting scene, hunting scenes in particular, were a sign of attempting to capture the aristocracies, kind of like trying to make yourself look like nobility. If you could afford to hunt, then you really had money. So this was to some degree like aspirational. To some degree, it was very aspirational of saying, I am a person who could afford to hunt probably. Another interesting thing about the hunt is at the time, it was also a symbol of sexual intercourse and kind of like a vulgar sexual intercourse, kind of like chasing people who are not married to you, which is also in kind of in line with the era at the time, people were very focused on a balance of elegance, decadence, nobility, and also they were focused on um, informality, everyday scenes, like the nitty-gritty bits of life. And I think that that's a really good thing to know when coming into hunting scenes. Another thing that I found interesting is a lot of critics that I was reading about Albert were very focused on the fact that he paints cattle particularly well. And I don't know why, but that really, really makes me laugh. I think that's hilarious. Well, I mean, like, we're recording this, like, right next to the Ohio State Fairgrounds near it. And you just made me think of butter cows. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Butter cows. I had a friend who built a butter sculpture. It was an interesting experience. Let's actually talk a little bit about who Albert Koop actually was. Albert Koop was born in October of 1620 and died November of 1691. He was a Dutch painter, a draftsman, and a printmaker artistically. He also was a landowner in Dordrecht. He actually was a small-time politician. He kind of ran for city council and, like, all the things like that. I'm sure there's a better, fancier word for it, but it's escaping my mind. He also is more or less known as a landscape artist. Even his other genre pieces are considered to have landscape elements, even the portraiture and stuff like that. He actually inherited his art studio from his father, Jacob Kupi, and his father was a portrait artist rather than a landscape artist. And as a result, Albert, unlike other artists of the era, didn't really travel to learn his craft. He kind of just learned from the people who were around the Netherlands. Most artists at the time would travel to Italy, would travel to France and all the other great areas. He is considered a Baroque artist. He's also considered Italianate artist. An Italian artist is essentially anyone who is painting things that resemble the Italian landscape or the Italian flavor. Essentially everything Italian that isn't Olive Garden. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the Baroque era. A lot of critics at the time that the Baroque paintings were coming out thought they really were Baroque and needed to be fixed. The word Baroque is derived from a Spanish or Portuguese word, Barococo or Barreco, both of which mean large, malshapen pearl, kind of because critics at the time thought that the figures were dirty, ugly looking, kind of thought that they were um, a little misshapen, which is funny to me because the Baroque era is so famous for being so beautiful now. So, so okay, not knowing anything about this. Yeah. So if you were a Baroque artist, was that like an insult at the time? 
it kind of because it sounds pejorative. It sounds like a bad thing. It kind of was an insult at the time, actually, okay. to be considered a broke artist. This was like coming off of like Renaissance artists. What 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 you have to know about art, similar to politics, is they swing back and forth. Right. Every current movement is in response to the movement before. Right. So the Baroque era kind of was a response to the Renaissance era was a response to the kind of gothic era of we are only going to paint grand things. We are only going to paint perfect things. So we are now the Baroque era and we are going to paint scenes of people like dressing a chicken, scenes of flowers dying, scenes of people putting their boots on, getting ready for the hunt. Like we're not going to focus on what's beautiful, rather on what is real. And speaking of politics, do you want to talk about Dutch politics? Sure, and I feel I feel like I, I, I should know more about the history of the Netherlands, but that's never you're been okay. my focus. So. You know, you're okay. You always talk me through all the politicians in the area when it comes time to vote, so it's fine. <laughs> so let's talk about Dutch politics. So before this era, very recently, in fact, the Netherlands had become independent of a Spanish Catholic rule. And as a result, several things happened. Number one, the Netherlands became more Protestant rather than Catholic. And Protestants did not like religious iconography the way that Catholics did. So they ended up painting less pictures of Jesus, Lex pictures of Mary and things like that, and began focusing more on the everyday person. They kind of thought it was not respectful to paint religious iconography. And another thing about like being newly independent, there was a lot of pride at the time. So they really wanted to capture the Dutch landscape. They really wanted to cover things like their wealth of seafood. So you'll see in the CMA, they have a still life that is just bits of seafood, fish, oysters, all the things that you would find. They kind of just want to like highlight what it was like to be living as a Dutch person in that era. At the time, there was a higher amount of trade throughout the Netherlands. So you're seeing a boom in that middle class that I mentioned earlier, the merchant class kind of just like everything about it meant that the middle class not only could now afford paintings, they wanted paintings about themselves. They wanted paintings that they could hang up in their not 50-foot ceiling castle, but their little mansions, which is why pieces like this are smaller scaled, but still like impressive and kind of just ready to go up there. So I think that that's just kind of a very like good and interesting response to have. Kind of like how after 9-11, we saw an influx in like Americana available everywhere. Right. Are there some things that you want to go back and touch back on? while we're looking at this painting. I mean, I, I wonder, one thing I wonder looking at this is, is this supposed to represent a specific geographic location? Yes and no. So one of the things that's really interesting about Koopa being a, both a Dutch artist and being a person who tries to reflect that Italian style is that a lot of critics don't really fit him into either category as being, because while he is painting a Dutch landscape, the colors that he's using, those yellows, those reds, are really very Italian for what was coming out. The way that the leaves are painted, that they are kind of more sparse in foliage, is a definitely more Mediterranean vibe, more of an Italian thing. But the presence of cattle 
leads us to believe that it is more Dutch, the presence of this particular kind of body of water, things like that. It's an interesting mix. If you see more of his work, you'll see like how it kind of plays with both Italian landscape flavors and Dutch landscape flavors. So I don't think this is necessarily anywhere in particular, but I do think that it's kind of a mesh of what would be Dutch and what would be Italian. Anything else that you want to talk about again? Oh my gosh. Um, like the pretty ponies or the dog? Yeah. I, well, I guess one thing I would wonder is, is there any specific significance attached to the types of or the colors of the horses? I think that one of my friends, Oliver, would probably be the person to ask about the types of horses because then they could go into things like, oh, this is the breed of horse and where it would have come from. (laughs) Are these horses German? (laughs) Well, I'm not seeing... So the only horse that I know, like, off the top of my head that is, like, a true, like, symbol of nobility... Actually, I know two is um, the Lipizzanier, and neither of those are Lipizzaniers because Lipizzaniers are white. Because you are way ahead of me because my my knowledge and my ability to describe these creatures stops at, that's a horse! Well, one thing that you can definitely tell is these are not working horses. These horses are only meant for, for riding that's for, actually like, really cross-country. Because, like, look how much attention is paid to oh look look at the beautiful tail of the horse Mm -hmm. they're very well manicured they have tack that's specific to their colors that you're seeing reflected in the coats the legs are very like thin and kind of more more in line with a fast horse rather than like a horse that would be towing a plow or something like that okay so i have a question Given given the era and and what you know about the era, what are they hunting? Probably foxes, to be honest. Foxes, deer. The reason why I go to foxes, honestly, is because that is a mark of being noble, is to go on a fox hunt. Because you don't need it to eat. You don't need it to survive. It's fast. It's red. It's pretty. Do they Um, have, like, muskets? What's going on here? So like, how I are they going to take down the fox? Do I the leaned dogs, away from like, my... Do the dogs, like... So what the dogs are used for in hunting is they're actually used to flush out either the foxes or birds, pheasants, whatever they're going for. My grandfather used to beagle, which I think is hilarious. This dog in particular is definitely not a badger hound. This dog is a greyhound or an implied greyhound. So it's very fast, so it would be chasing things like deer fox stuff like that because it's got a very like it's built to kind of like run around quickly it's also not a hound which means that it's not used for tracking something that's downed because the hounds would have the ears that would help waft the scent back i don't know why i know all these details that's kind of pretty much um all that i know unless you want to talk about some things like technique of painting. So if you see the red in the grass uh-huh. and you can kind of see the red in here, I just zoomed a little bit with my touch screen oh, there, that I forget there, that I there's, had. There's another and there's, dude there. There is another dude there. I didn't see him. Hello. <laughs> I get surprised too sometimes. Anyway, you'll see like this repeated kind of like ruddy burnt sienna color that keeps popping up in kind of like not random necessarily places but just different places that's a color that was used very often as like an underpainting a lot of landscapes are actually painted this reddish color and then it's layered over with green and yellow and blue just to kind of create like warm tinges underneath all of the cooler colors So, so I have a question. Given like 
the artist's skill set and the tools that they had at the time, how long would it typically take to make a painting like this? I actually have a time guesstimate for when this painting was created. If I look back in my notes far enough, they believe that this painting was painted between 1655 and 1659. And that can mean a few things. That can mean either we don't really know when this was made, but this is where we're guessing. Or it means that this artist was working on multiple pieces and that's how long it took them to paint it. I know it really honestly depends on the artist. Like Leonardo da Vinci worked on um, Mona Lisa until he died, but that's because he wanted to keep tweaking it because his commissioner didn't like it. Really, I know, who would have thought? So it really it really just depends, is the answer. It depends on the artist. They did stretch their own canvas back then, which takes some time. They did, a lot of times, mix their own paint, make it from the pigments itself, or they had a, an apprentice do it for them. I'm not actually sure whether or not they had an apprentice. But yeah, no, it is, it's a longer process because you can't just walk down to an art store and be like, I want a canvas that's this size and I guess I'll get studio grade paint from the store. So this is a sort of a little bit of a tangential question, but yeah. like this is in the Columbus Museum of Art, of Art right now, right? It is, right. What's involved in restoring and or maintaining a painting like this? So I don't know everything about this particular Thing, just letting you know. In part- I mean, in- like, I guess in general, mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah, you're okay. Like this type of painting. So all oil paintings, not all oil paintings, but most oil paintings are varnished at the end. Varnish is kind of a layer that protects it from right. the elements. Over time, the varnish will collect dust, smoke, if it's in an area with smokers, pollution, different things like that. So every so often they will remove the layers of varnish. You actually can find really satisfying videos of you on YouTube of people removing varnish off of old paintings. It's very nice. And this will expose more of the original color. And then people will go back in highly, highly paid. I don't know if they're highly paid. I, I imagine that they're highly paid. Very skilled at any rate, people will come in and they are trained to paint like the people of the era that they're recreating. They're the kind of people that could create copies and sell fakes, honestly. And they'll come in and they'll take tiny brushes and fix whatever needs fixing. They'll sew holes back together. They'll add paint and stuff like that. And what's interesting is like there are cases of paintings that they applied the wrong kind of paint when they restored it so it was the wrong color so when they re-restore it it's a new color like it's a lot yeah because i think that you know speaking as a lay person in my mind what's what would be involved in restoring a painting would just be like cleaning it but it sounds like it's a much more involved process oh yeah to some degree involves they paint on the paintings? Yeah, I, I had a conversation um, with somebody about about this um, recently. They were like, how do painters, art restorers feel about the fact that they're unknown? What part of this painting belongs to the original right. artist and what belongs to the restorer? What belongs to the museum or the, collection, or the collector or whatever after it's been restored? How many removals away of the Mona Lisa are we looking at? And I would imagine, too, it's one of those things where the worst possible thing for an art restorer is that their work is noticed. Right, that is definitely the worst, the worst thing. It means you've done a very bad job, actually. I actually think that it's time for us to wrap up. 
And I think I would like to thank WCBE for having me. I'd like to thank Caitlin for teaching me how levels work a little bit today. And that was really interesting because I'm actually recording this for the first time. I would like to plug the Columbus Museum of Art. You can find them at columbusmuseum.org. Also, the Dordrecht Museum is spelled, their uh, website is spelled D O R. D-R-E-C-H-T-S museum.nl Ramona, would you like people to be able to find you? Uh, no. That's, that's okay. fair. Yeah, that's fair. Do you want to plug okay. your workplaces again, then? Well, I mean, I don't think the Ohio State University needs any plugs. Fair. Um, I, th- I think that they're pretty well known. The, you know, I, I don't parts. know. I, I've never heard of OSU. Um, <laughs> I have. But Equitas Health, I specifically work for the Equitas Health Institute. Nice. And we're the education, research, and community engagement arm of Equitas Health. Mm-hmm. Long story short, what I tell my distant relatives who have no idea what I do for a living, I tell them that I teach people how to not be jerks to LGBTQ people. Yeah, and you can actually hire Equitas Health and Ramona to come train people about how to be more sensitive towards the LGBTQIA community. So I guess if we're just in the business of plugging it, I mean, if you have questions, email me, Peel at EquitasHealth.com. So that's R-A-M-O-N-A-P-E-E-L at EquitasHealth.com. And then I'm going to plug myself. You can find our Instagram with the handle Please Touch the Art Podcast. You also can find my personal Instagram at Kieve.art, spelled K-I-E-V-E dot A-R-T. And you can find my website, K-R-O-D-E. H-E-A-V-E-R-A-R-T dot com. And you can find our podcast at WCBE and wherever all podcasts are found. Mm-hmm.